0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Cynthia, and I will be hosting today's Awaken Call. Thank you for joining us from wherever you happen to be in the world. The intention behind these calls is to plant seeds of awareness and transformation within ourselves and in our communities through conversations with individuals whose journeys and work inspire us. Awaken Calls is an initiative of Service Space, a distributed global community run entirely by volunteers. Service space catalyzes and connects individuals and communities rooted in inner work and outer compassionate action. Behind each of these calls is an entire service space team whose invisible work allows us to hold the space. In a few minutes, I will introduce our moderator, Pavi Mehta, who will engage in an initial dialogue with our guest, Ala Liza Gofori. And by the top of the hour we will draw upon reflections and questions from our listeners at any time during the call, you can submit your comments. Or, well, actually yeah if if the zoom if the uh, w- webinar is working, you can submit um, your questions by the webcast form on the live stream page, or you can email us at ask at service space.org if there are any technical glitches um, which. Some may be experiencing. We just ask for your patience as our team works to quickly resolve them. Whether you're tuning in live right now or listening to the recording later, we are grateful for your presence in co-creating and deepening the collective energy of this conversation. All of our calls begin with a minute of silence to allow us to anchor ourselves into this space. Thank you and welcome again. Our moderator for the conversation today with Halaliza Ghaffoury is Puffy Mehta. Puffy is a writer, poet, visionary, and longtime volunteer with ServiceSpace. She co-leads our inspiring news portal, Daily Good, and is the co-author of a remarkable book, Infinite Vision, that tells how the Aravind Eye Hospitals in India became the world's greatest business case for compassion. And as I was reflecting more on how to describe Puffy, um, I came across the words of a beloved late brother of these awakened calls, Koza Hattori, who once described Puppy as, quote, reveling in the poetry of everyday life and reflecting it back manifold through the alchemy of the beauty intelligence intelligence and grace that lie at the core of her being. Mm-hmm. So I could, um, I think there's there's no more fitting uh, moderator for this conversation. And with that, I turn it over to Pavi to introduce our
1: guest. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. Um, it's such a delight. And without any further ado, I do want to just go right into introducing Hale Liza Ghaffori. She is a poet, translator, musician, born in New York City of Persian descent. Her book, Gold, translations of poems by the Persian sage and mystic Rumi was published by New York Review Books in March of this year. It's garnered high praise from multiple corners and is already in its second edition. Poetry editor Kaveh Akbar has said of this book, it is everything Rumi himself was. Sacred, profane, laugh out loud funny, deeply earnest, and yes, Persian. There's a rich fluency here not just in idiom but in gesture in spirit. Gafuri's Rumi teaches me how to wander into mystery, quote, humble as soil, unquote. What a gift this is. What gold. Hale has toured extensively with various projects, adopting Persian poetry to song. She performs and teaches workshops on Rumi's poetry at universities, art centers, and festivals across the US. I first came across Hale in 2012 in... Uh, the medieval mountain town of Assisi in Italy, at a conference on love and forgiveness, a town where 800 years ago a saint named Francis wandered the streets in a brown robe, burning with his bright love of God. She was there as one of the official poet performers, but one night under the stars as I was returning to my hotel room, I chanced upon her sitting outside with a handful of conference attendees, and they were singing together. It was impossible not to be enchanted by the beauty and the spontaneity of that moment. And they sang unaccompanied one of her original songs. I still remember just the haunting poetry, the melody, the truthfulness of it took my breath away. And I just wanna share a few lines from it. When the moon unfurls her staircase, like the long bleached tongue of a dragon, please go ahead and climb because life wants to see you whole again, and the rain wants to taste your skin. The sky, the, the sky wants to fill your eyes, and stillness wants to touch your mind. So please, don't resist. We didn't interact very much at that time, but in the years that followed, I often remembered the quiet, exquisite quality of that impromptu nighttime concert. And knowing her work better now, it makes total sense to me that she was even back then following in Rumi's luminous footsteps, opening doorways, melting walls, inviting our presence at life's feast, singing not just on stages, but on the fringes and the margins. So now almost a decade later, it feels at once rather magical and also utterly fitting to have you here with us today. Hello, welcome, and thank you for saying yes to this conversation.
2: Thank you, thank you, Pavni. Thank you so much. Beautiful, poetic intro, and uh, very happy to be here with you all. And very like appreciative.
1: To- very appreciative <laughs> that you reached out. I want to invite you to to. to bring us into a shared space of listening um, with a verse from Rumi in, in the original Persian. Sure.
2: Maybe I'll, I'll sing it. <laughs> در رگ روان نکن روان نکن روان نکن آینه سبو را ترجمه شبان نکن شبان نکن آب حیات آب حیات عشران the translation that was an excerpt from a poem, the translation, let love, let love the water of life flow through our veins. Let a love drunk mirror steeped in the wine of dawn translate night. You who pour the wine, put the cup of oneness in my hand and let me drink from it until I can't imagine separation. Love, you are the archer. My mind is your prey. Carry my heart and make my existence your bullseye goodness
1: and is that the opening poem in your
2: yeah yeah that's the book. opening poem yeah in the book oh,
1: right out the gate it you start on on such a high note and for many of us listening for most of us listening i would imagine when we listen to your song we were listening to something deeper than the the, the conceptual meaning of the words and and is that how you first listened to Rumi?
2: I first heard Rumi, uh, as a child, my father would recite him. So I first heard him chanting, reciting. There was one particular poem he loved to, to recite. So he would recite this and, you know, at the time, I didn't quite understand the meanings and but the sound the rhythm of the poetry stayed with me and the way it sort of transformed the space remained with me
1: mm.
2: until years later when I encountered Rumi again but that was how I first heard him and then also my parents uh would hold shabbat which are nightly poetry nights uh with friends and I would hear people reciting them there and of course a lot of Persian vocalists sing the words of Rumi because his poetry lends itself so much to song. It's very rhythmic. He was often composing while a drum was playing. So there's a kind of rhythm embedded. So it lends itself to song. So these are the ways I heard him.
1: Wow, wow. and that in the Persian culture, could you speak a little bit about that the poeticness of it the way it's it's embedded in it, it's not just at night or you know in these in these types of events but it seems like it is just like poetry is sold on the streets is, yeah is what I, yeah,
2: I <laughs> I, I think poetry is is woven into the fabric of life, I believe, in many, many, many people's lives in 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 Iran, um, whether you know children are memorizing Hafez that happens it's not it's not totally uncommon or surprising um, people hold Shabbos these poetry nights with some frequency it's not uncommon at all. Um, and you know, if, if someone's selling fruit in the street, he'll, the chant, you know, by, from the fruit peddler will be oftentimes rhyming and, you know, kind of have a poetic aspect to it, or graffiti might be poetic, rhyming. The protests, protest slogans are often interestingly poetic and rhyming and, and the names of people have a poetry to them. Uh, we were talking about um, before we got on the uh, Zoom, you asked me what my, po- my name means. My name means the halo around the moon. Hala means the halo around the moon. So there's a poetry inside names as well. Um, mm-hmm. My last name Gafuri, which uh, comes from Gafur, which is one of the 99 names in the Sufi tradition. They say that 99 names of God, although there's infinite names, but they say the 99 names of God. And they also say there's infinite names. Uh, but Kafur means forgiveness, but it means forgiveness for the deepest crime. <laughs> so that's what my last name means forgiveness <laughs> for the deepest crime. So there's a kind of, oftentimes, there's a deep meaning to a lot of the words that we use as names, too. So I'd say that's another way the poetry shows up.
1: Yeah. And I imagine that weaves into the consciousness of the people, into their imagination, into the, it's inseparable from their memories, from their dreams, from, and i wonder about you know you are a translator as well as a poet yourself and immigrants are also translators aren't they like there's something that is in your experience of growing up in one culture being part of another and constantly maybe shuttling you know and weaving between those two could you give us a little snapshot of your formative years and and kind of what that experience was like and the shaping influences and um, direction that your life eventually took.
2: Mm. Well, just in terms of uh, being between two cultures, yeah, that's a really uh, kind of intense and multifaceted experience. I think as a child and adolescent, I wasn't very much interested in Persian culture. I wasn't very much interested in Persian poetry. And I wanted to be American, whatever that meant to me at the time. And it, you know, at a, around the age of 20, when I was doing getting my MFA in poetry, there was a translation class and uh, that I decided to take. And my first thought was I would take, I would translate from Spanish because I had been studying Spanish in school. And then suddenly it occurred to me, wait a second, why don't I <laughs> dig into my own roots? So that was a very, much a turning point when I decided to learn Persian, learn, I should say, learn to read and write because I, I could understand it. My parents were speaking the language. I grew up hearing it, not as much speaking it though. They wanted me to speak largely in English and they spoke to me in English, but here was a point at which I decided to really dig into my roots. And I think that's one of the best parts of being of two cultures is when we decide that they both have value when we can actually recognize the value of both of them and when we decide out of pleasure and curiosity and perhaps eventually passion to dig in you know and bring forth some of the gems and be a kind of ambassador a kind of bridge um you know instead of feeling always sort of not one or the other you know i think this is a way of celebrating the bothness of the experience
1: mm-hmm. yeah you, you speak so eloquently about um the form Rumi Rodin the gazelle form and uh, that the word gazelle comes from and, and the way it takes these unexpected leaps um, yes. conceptually um, lyrically and i feel like your life too has taken unexpected leaps you have a graduate degree in biological sciences from Stanford before the MFA, and yeah. the poetry became central and music uh, in your life. And so, could you speak a little bit about that that leap?
2: Yeah, it's a kind of funny leap. I I think you know I was uh, I was not a rebel. I wasn't a rebel as a young person, you know. And uh, you know, among Persian immigrants and many immigrants, you know, be a doctor is the sort of call, you know, and I just was sort of following in this kind of path, you know, to uh, go and, and study biology, although I really loved biology, but I didn't feel that I wanted to be a doctor. So finally, after doing all the work and getting into medical schools, right, as I was sort of on the threshold, that's when I said, you know what, actually, no I, I don't 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 want to do this and I I want to um, you know I want to enter the arts really I want to pursue my love of the arts and and so I took a turn which was a big shock for my family especially after you know getting into the medical schools and not going was my grandmother from Iran was calling me it was a big tragedy but anyway <laughs> But, but anyway, it turned, we all, we're all, we're all happy with it now. But the point is, is that, you know, uh, yeah, I think that sometimes we, it takes us time to figure out what we love or where we resonate most and pursue that. And I, and I think it is important for it to start with curiosity, not to have the pressure of of making a living from it or making it a passion. So I was working, I was using my degree in, in different ways, you know, to to support myself while pursuing the arts.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. It it strikes me that it's very relatable from the Indian culture to the doctor, you know, um, priority that is given to that path. Um, but it strikes me there is something also that echoes um, Rumi's kind of the destruction of images, right? The, the necessity of that. Um yes. and the inquiry at the core. Like, what is this? What, what am I? Who am I? Um the it's it sounds like that exploration, um, it, even before you maybe consciously knew what it was was happening. And I'm wondering as you started to uncover the roots of of your culture and the literature and spirituality, what what surprised you? what you know, what did you discover?
2: I'd say one of the things that I love so much about Rumi's poetry and and a lot of Persian poetry, or of this time, uh, or per- poetry that might be called Sufi mystical poetry, is that um, there is this real understanding of the human condition, of the challenges, and also of the beauty of transformation and the invitation and the promise almost I mean at the center of Sufi mysticism is the idea that we're here to alchemize our beings that we're here to alchemize consciousness to expand from what might be more stifling ways of seeing um, and being into more expansive compassionate generous and loving ways of being and you know perhaps we feel those things already but we always expand or perhaps we don't perhaps we're you know very much guarded very much behind armor very much behind walls and this is you know and 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 greedy or whatever the nafs amara you know the 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 sufi mysticism talks about stages of nafs so nafs is a word that means self but it also means soul. So it's a dynamic word that is trying to define this kind of uh, multi-layered thing we call the human being, right? So from, from, from ego, let's say ego, uh, to soul. So this is the sort of spectrum that we travel along and at the ideas that as we move towards this kind of soulful way of being that where we're seeing through eyes of the beloved as rumi says where we're seeing uh, uh seeing one when the mind insists on two where we see the oneness where we uh embrace where we you know he says uh, dismiss the vicious judge from the post you gave him you know bow to a human and greet the angel and this idea that in that motion of both of bowing to the human and greeting the angel we meet both angels we meet the angel within us and the angel within the other so anyway Sufi mysticism is an invitation for all of this I think that the central prayer of the Sufi mystical path is teach me to love more deeply very simple prayer uncover the love within me and as one moves along from Nafsa Amara to the what's the purified nafs, you know, this is this passage, and it's it's never with shaming. It's there's no shaming. There's no um, there's no flagell- self-flagellation that's invited here. It's all compassion. We only move through compassion. We only move through through loving this whole three hundred sixty. Degree, experience, and being that we are, recognizing the mixed bag that we are, uh, but I, but what I love about it is the invitation to expand consciousness and to move out of fear thinking, to move out of the the uh, more kind of suffocating ways of being.
1: And on that note, you had a, a particular line, I think, from McCombin Barks' translation, right? That really intersected with. With where you with where you were move out of the yeah there
2: was a line um move out of the tangles of fear thinking mm-hmm. yes. so when i was when i was 21 i remember hearing reading that line and thinking oh my because i did have quite uh an intense anxiety disorder as a child and adolescent and so this kind of invitation to move out of the fear thinking was a revelatory one for me at the time because i thought oh so one can actually do that cuz i've been swimming in it so what would it mean to step out of this so it was an invitation and sometimes you know lines of poetry can be can guide us mm. and point us
1: mm. to realms and i think it also is a is sort of like a an affirmation of like this is not an aberration from normalcy this is the human journey this moving out of the tangles indeed
2: um, indeed yeah and you know and and one moves along and then maybe slips back and forth and different situations bring us back and forth along this spectrum but yes it's it's uh, it is it's it's part of the human it's part of the human uh, uh, journey if we mm-hmm. want it to be, if we want allow ourselves to take this wonderful journey of transformation mm-hmm. and expansion.
1: It's one aspect. there's so many aspects of Rumi's poetry that seem timeless, or they seem maybe even more relevant today, you know, than ever. Um and I'm thinking of there's a quote by the um by the Indian mystic philosopher Jidukrishnamurthy, and he says something like it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Hmm. And and I think about Rumi's poetry and the way it upends so many conventions, right? That are upends and maybe puts them the right way up. But because we're living in an upside down <laughs> um, paradigm, you know, I think of the the images of drunkenness in his poetry, the images of insanity, madness, the images of destruction, you know, self-immolation. Um, how do all of these things tie together? Like, what is the, 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 what is he destroying and what is he offering up as an alternative? Pa- paradigm feels like the wrong, too small a word, but you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it might be best to let him say it through the poems, I could, I could recite at some point, I guess I'll, uh, the fire the burning. Um, well, there's so much in this book where we're talking about loves flames or or love as water in which we drown in the shoreless sea of love, this vast shoreless sea of love. What are we doing? What's drowning? What's burning away? Again, you know, these kinds of aspects of self that are not in touch with um, the ears and eyes mm. of love, really. I mean, when I think, for instance, about growing up along the Hudson River as a child, looking out on the Hudson River, um, and, you know, at that time, it was a very, very polluted river, and this uh, ex- experience as a child, a of child looking at, my goodness gracious, we polluted this river, what is wrong with us? You know, this river, you can't swim in this river, you can't fish from this river, this river that was so abundant with life and was such a source of nourishment for people within the last, you know, 50 years or 100 years became so Devastatingly polluted, and at that time when I was a child, you know, it was the 1.3 million pounds of PCBs that had really um, devastated the river. Uh, you know, what causes that to happen, and how do we how do we deal with you know the spectrum of human actions? I mean, that was a a short-sighted greedy, irreverent move. you know it was the, 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 the idea was to maximize profit. The idea was um, let's do something that's convenient. let's get rid of this waste, just dump it in the river. it's invisible, no one will notice. you know and it was not a moment's thought about the fish or what that would mean for uh, us walking along the river and how how can we how can we honor this earth, preserve it? revere it i mean these you know these are such important and basic things to do as a human but they're so lost to us and legislation doesn't protect the waters legislation doesn't protect um, uh, so much that 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 we actually need and create scarcity where there was abundance uh, because we're not sort of Preserving and protecting. So anyway, I think that you know, Rumi does address this in, in calling us to love more deeply, in calling us to recognize the beauty of this world, the sensual beauty of this world. You know, he's calling for a deep reverence. And it is a personal experience and it's a political experience. And mm-hmm.
1: uh yeah. <laughs> And what's striking about it, he sometimes calls us to reverence in such an irreverent way, too. That you know, sort of like the the shattering of certain, I guess, ossified norms. And um, um what you were saying, you know, that just alchemy being one of the themes of this call and so central to to the poems in, in gold. I was thinking about um a an article by an Iranian American writer, Ari Hanavar, in which she describes. It, it's a t- the title of it is called "When Savoring Pleasure Becomes a Radical Act." And she's talking about being seven years old during wartime Iran and the family going up to the rooftop during a, you know, wh- when the missiles were were exploding. And as a child witnessing the simultaneous bizarre fireworks aspect of it, and also the fear of like whose life is going to be taken, and in the middle of that seen a voice from a neighboring rooftop you know started out in the air shouting a voice of Rumi's poetry mm. even from the sky poison befalls us all I'm still sweetness wrapped in sweetness wrapped in sweetness mm. and then another voice with another verse from another rooftop right and as a child experiencing that experiencing the defiance the power the the deathlessness of that kind of joy, yes. um, that seems so central. And I'm and I i wondering, like, how how did that theme, as you've worked with these translations, how did that theme of alchemy, of joy, um, discovered in the, you know, kind of in the jaws of uh, terror, in the jaws of grief and loss, how did that come alive for you? Well.
2: I think, you know, as we go through life and we experience hardship and trials and tribulations, uh, as I did, uh, I found, um, I think I found some kind of salvation through noticing the simple beauties of the world. Sometimes the challenges in our lives open our eyes more deeply to them. And, you know, reveling in this poetry, swimming in this sea of poetry during the pandemic at this desk, you know, was a really wonderful thing to do. And uh, that was a lot of the work that I did on the book happened during the pandemic. So while we were sort of quarantined, then I was reading about this kind of spaciousness and this, as I said, this shoreless sea that he often speaks of. So it was very nourishing, it was very soothing. Um, you know, Rumi asks in one of the poems. He says, uh, "Misers rule; generosity fades from memory. Still, your heart is full; your eyes see." Uh, actually, let me find the poem because I'm not remembering it exactly. Um, but he talks about you know facing these crises. Like he he sets up in each stanza or in each couplet a um an apocalyptic vision and asks us who are we going to be in the face of crisis um, who are we going to be what kind of generosity are we going to muster at what kind of ecstatic experiences are we going to allow ourselves to have even as things are falling apart around us and he doesn't you know it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of to access the ecstatic he invites us to, you know, in one of the poems, the the cu- he says, the cupbearer calls out, um, greetings, friends, to drink this wine is not a sin. And of course, you know, it, whether it's metaphorical or literal, God's wine. But anyway, he says, to drink this wine is not a sin. To feel ecstasy is not a sin. Feeling guilt for feeling pleasure? That's your sin. That's your chain. Shatter it. Tear it off. Then... Invite the Puritans over. And he says, today, and he continues, today is an invitation to ecstasy. Let them know. If they turn away, let them go. Let them judge. Let them talk. Let them smear your good name. You'll have less to guard. Lover, the eyes of lovers behold you. Your friend is the sea. Hmm. Hmm. So, this is such an expansive and such an important poem, also considering the context that he was in, you know, 800 years ago, where among the conservatives, not among all Muslims by any means, but among the conservatives, oftentimes, you know, music was considered a sin, a distraction at best, a sin at worst, you know. So, he was saying, uh uh-uh, uh, you know, listening to music, deep listening, deep listening, Sama, the practice of Sama, is, is part of my way of connecting with God, you know, mm-hmm. and the pleasure of it was liberating for him. And the focus that it demanded, uh, deep listening to music and poetry, that Shams of Tabriz invited him to do, um, this practice became so central to his life. And he was oftentimes whirling. Sama also means the whirling dance, oftentimes whirling while he was doing this. So it was a deeply meditative practice. It required a lot of motor coordination, you know, and it required a clear mind. And so he would clear his mind this way and activate his ears. And with one hand facing the sky and one hand facing the earth, you know, he would turn and turn and turn with the drum and oftentimes recite poetry. And he says, or, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, compose, spontaneously compose. So this kind of clearing of the mind allowed him to hear, as he says in one line, Pambeya vas vas birun kun ta ayad az gardun khurush take the cotton of the mind's doom-ridden chatter out of your ears hear the booming voice of the heavens hear the roar of fate hear the ruckus the muse makes so this invitation to clear our mind to clear our ears of doom-ridden chatter which is what vas means um, but also these attachments to reputation concerns about reputation as he said in the other poem. Let them talk let them judge let them smear your good name you'll have less to guard, you know this kind of sense of rebel and and be do you <laughs> do you as deeply as you can without shame, and you know and and don't be ashamed of, of ecstasy. Don't be ashamed of pleasure. These were very important messages then and they are now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. And and there is something I once heard, I don't know who said it, but like the the Sufi way can be essentialized as a simple statement to to find joy in the heart when grief comes. Yes. That, that yoking together that Rumi does of extremes of paradoxes and and not explaining them but just forcing them into the present you know our forcing our presence in front of them these are real realities these paradoxes yes. and
2: yes and and you know for him uh, you know he was uh living during the time of the mongol invasions um they were you know uh the mongols were destroying city after city and plundering villages and killing a lot of people and he was aware of this there his family left present day afghanistan and did a 10 year journey across the middle east and during this journey um they were uh in some ways they were refugees in some ways they were avoiding the mongols they were also exploring now also while he was on this journey he was with a caravan and they were under the stars. We can only imagine how beautiful the sky was 800 years ago. And this, you know, the, 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 the orchards and the gardens, the fragrance of the flowers. So he was aware of such extremes, you know, of this incredible, uh, terrible extreme of war and the stories that he heard. And um, in fact, Attar, who was a Persian mystical poet and kind of his poetic father was killed by the Mongols. He found out, you know, so this man who was writing about was such an important poetic figure in his life was eventually killed by the Mongols. So, yes, Rumi was aware of the extremes and the potential, mm-hmm. and I think that's why and he was so sensitive. And I think that's why, you know, he felt this incredible desire to keep pointing us to the wonders and pointing us to the beauty and inviting us to get off the battleground. You know, he says, "We exited the battleground in the crooked valley of thorns. We shed our twisted delusions and from a heart-rending world of deception we broke free." You know, there is this there is that force, yeah. you know, that is yeah. that message is very clear in his poetry.
1: I want to go more into, you know, you mentioned deep listening in that practice, that discipline. Um, and there is such a evident form of deep listening that comes through in your translations. Um, it, and I'm sure, you know, all our listeners have heard it in, in the choice of words, the rhythm, the, the juxtapositions. Uh, so I'd love to speak more or hear you speak more about your craft, your process, your practice. But before that, there is a poem on page 10 mm. that has a thread of laughter running through oh, it that speaks yes. to so many of the themes that you've touched on. Um, and so if you could read either from parts of that or the whatever you feel inspired sure. to be sure.
2: Yeah, and I'll mention too that you know you mentioned the form ghazal. So uh, many of the poems that I translated in this book are ghazals, which are these, um, a string of couplets they stand on their own and they're connected not by any kind of narrative or but but by a repeating refrain by a refrain so so oftentimes. Um, well, always the refrain is at the end of the couplet so sometimes in translation. We keep that form. So for instance, in one of the ghazals in the book, the refrain is come and dance, come and dance, come and dance, come and dance. And at the end of every stanza, you hear this repeat refrain. This one is an example where the refrain is laughing, laughter, laugh, khandidan. And I allowed the refrain to slink through the poem rather than repeating it at the end. So you'll hear laugh, laughing, laughter a lot in this poem. And one of the things that the ghazal does is it, it gives us a, a snapshot of uh, the refrain from different angles. So, and between the stanzas are leaps, as I said, they're not necessarily connected by any kind of uh, narrative, only by the fact that they're different angles on the word. Mm-hmm. So, just just as you know, in terms of listening, it kind of helps, I think, to to know that about the form. Your laughter turns the world to paradise. It tears through me like fire, it teaches me. Reborn in emptiness, I emerge laughing, here to learn from love, new depths of laughter. I've been short on courage, but I have a heart of sunlight straight from the king's hand. I stir up laughter, even in those who fear joy. Crack open my shell, steal the pearl, I'll still be laughing. It's the rookies who laugh only when they win. Last night, the spirit of dawn came to my room and gave me a lesson in laughter. Our blazing roars lit the morning sky. When I brood like a rain cloud, laughter flashes through me. It's the habit of lightning to laugh through a storm. Look at the furnace, look at the stones, see the glowing red veins, gold, laughing in fire, daring you. Prove you're no fake, laugh even when you lose. We're fodder for death, so learn to laugh from the angel of death. He laughs at the jeweled belts and crowns of kings, all that splendor's just unloaned. Tree top blossoms erupt in laughter. Petals rain down. Laugh like the bud of a flower hugging the ground. Its hidden smile opens to a laugh that lasts a lifetime. It, the, you know the way he deals with the parent, the winning and losing. I, I think of um, I can't remember her name right now, Carla something. But the the growth mindset when they talk about growth mindset. Carl.
0: Carol Dwight.
2: Yes, yes, thank you. Yes. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, this ability to let go of obsessions with winning, obsessions with hierarchy is such an important part of the philosophy. In another poem, he says, um, and, and it is in this one when he says, you know, crack open my shell, steal the pearl, I'll still be laughing. It's the rookies who laugh only when they win you know, and then later kind of repeats that idea laugh, even when you lose, come on, we're fodder for death, learn to laugh from the angel of death. So this wonderful also acceptance of mortality, mm-hmm. that is so central to Sufi mysticism that also opens us up to a richer uh, appreciation of the time that we do have on the planet. Um, and also a bit of comedy uh, how can we take all of this so seriously when, you know, we will be leaving. So it lightens us up, too, and also makes us recognize how precious it is. But um, there's another poem in which he says, uh, uh, if you've made a habit of drinking vinegar, don't blame the vine. Ditch the vinegar and ditch the vendor who doesn't deal in life's nectar.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Poor loves wine and quit peddling misery. Look at me. I'm all invited to this feast, he says. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm so far gone in ecstasy. I can't tell up from down. So this, I'm the lowest of the low, I'm so far gone in ecstasy, I can't tell up from down, again, is another pointing us to that sort of flipping the script on all of this ideas of up and down. And
1: yeah. Yeah. It, it's just amazing. And I I want to hear now a little bit more cuz so far we've been talking about Rumi, but there is such a a role that you play, you know, in these words that you've been sharing with us. And and what is that role? What was your process? What was your listening practice? What were you aspiring for in your translations?
2: Um
1: well, first I'll say
2: you know, at the beginning of the process, I was uh reading the poems with my mother aloud, and she has a beautiful impeccable Persian and no accent. I have a bit of a Jersey accent when I speak. <laughs> um, so we would read and we would discuss and there are, backstories to some of the words, of course, there's con- cultural context. And so some of this stuff I grew up learning, knowing some of the stuff um, I discovered through the process uh, at times, um, you know, digging into dictionaries that Persian dictionary that had uh, gathered all the ancient meanings as well as modern day meanings and obscure meanings as well as very obvious ones, you know, in one place. That was very important because sometimes the words, you know, they have multiple meanings or they meant yeah. something different 800 years ago. So it was important to me to sort of be sensitive to this and make sure that I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, opening up every possibility and turning every stone and looking underneath and so on. <laughs> uh, also, um, I wanted to unpack things. So for instance, the word oud, uh, oud is a small little word. When he says, uh, zadi bar ma bar ma. that's one couplet. Zadi bar ma bar ma. He's saying, you lit a fire to my or are my oud. Okay, I'll tell you what. Oud, and then he says, watch the smoke rise. Dude means smoke rhymes with oud. But what is oud? oud is, you know, is an instrument, uh, but it's and it's also incense. And um, this idea of something that that burns this fragrant wood that burns. And as as it burns, it's, its essence is released. It's highest form is released you know in another poem when sham says to him you're an idol you're uh, 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 you're the center of the gathering you're an idol to your followers um you're the candle in their gathering I'm, I'm i'm messing up the line but essentially he's saying you're an idol you're a candle." he says i'm no idol i'm no candle i'm the scattering of smoke you know so he wanted to be burned away when he says i was cooked I'm sorry, I was raw. He says, I was raw, I was cooked, I was burned up. You know, and this is his evolution. I was raw, I was cooked, I was burned up. And I was cooked by Love's Flames, and I was consumed in Love's Flames until there was nothing but the spirit of me hmm. which was, which was coming through mm. his poetry, you know, and his poetry, which he never signed, he never put his name on. So again, that sort of idea of like burning away the self, the self, the self, the self was a big part of, of, of his philosophy. So, um, you know, trying to um, communicate that in the poems, by not altering really the text, but sometimes opening up words. So, just in the case of oud, for instance, you know, putting both meanings, both meanings of, so when, so the translation is in this case, um, you lit a fire to the fragrant wood and body of song in me, watch the smoke rise. You know, so that was how I dealt with that word there, the fragrant wood and body of song as both the incense and the instrument. In another poem, you know, I do talk about the essence, the smell, the fragrance of, of Udda. Um, when he says, just the other day, he says, just the other day, fire whispered to smoke. No stick of aloes wood shuns me. From its gnarls and knots, my flames unfurl, a honeyed musk of amber, fruit and flower it profits in perishing it welcomes me even thanks me so f- f- fire speaking to smoke and telling f- smoke that the that the incense the oud that's also where oud appears again the oud doesn't push it away the oud is like go ahead and burn me right and what is released is this this uh honeyed musk of amber fruit and flower you know, too delicious to miss. It profits in perishing. So anyway, wanting sometimes to open up, you know, what is the fragrance of the oud? So in mm-hmm. terms of translation, allowing myself on occasion to unpack a word, that was one of my desires, you know. Um, yeah unpack context a little bit. It, it, for instance, Mansoor is a figure that occurs and many people that read him in Persian know Mansoor, but American readers don't know Mansoor. So kind of embedding the story of Mansoor in the poem just to open it up a little bit and to reach readers. I felt like that was an important thing to do in the translation, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. allow the context to shine through.
1: Yeah, and what you're what you're saying is like it is alluding to the fact that like words contain worlds you know, they're not just one thing. And in a way that's what lends Rumi's poetry to so many interpretations. And, yeah. um, and the, you know, what made my heart rejoice in seeing your versions is that it brought in some of the complexity of context, you know, as opposed to stripping away the unfamiliar. Um, and that feels like one of the most powerful kinds of encounters that translations can bring to us, you know, encountering this strange as well and finding the familiar within it, you know, until it, it, it kind of like is a, a way of looking beyond our own um preconceptions and even our preferences. And, and I feel like your poetry really brings that in, in a in a way that hasn't isn't always seen in the translations when they're done by by English speakers who are working off of English translations.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you you feel feel that. I think I think I was saying t- saying recently that I feel like translators are kind of like telescopes, not to aggrandize us, but in the way that a telescope, you know. Um, crosses time to bring back a shimmering image. Mm-hmm. Uh, a translator mm-hmm. isn't crossing, say, billions of years, like the James Webb Telescope, but say hundreds or maybe millennia, mm-hmm. depending on the poet, to bring back the shimmering image. The translator is not, you know, traversing uh, the mysterious terrain of outer space, but the mysterious terrain of a foreign language to bring back the image, you know, and also... Yep this James Webb Telescope I was thinking about it the week when we were looking at the pictures, yeah. you know, was translating um, infrared waves into visible pictures. And, you know, the job of the poet or of the translator, especially in the realm of poetry, I think, is to um, translate the heat, bring over, convey, transmit the infrared spirit of the mm-hmm. poet and the poem into the image, you know, into the words on the page so that's one of the challenges and hopes is that the spirit comes across you know
1: um, in that in that spirit one of the things Rumi does is he traditionally in the form that he he composed in the poet would include his name I think you mentioned this that he never includes his name at the end he'll invoke shams or he'll invoke silence yes and I'm thinking how I would never thought of this before but translators are often working namelessly, you know, and behind the name, of behind the scenes, yeah. <laughs> the theater. And yeah. there is a kind of a silence that they're shrouded in. And I, I, could you speak to that? Both Rumi's relationship to silence and namelessness, uh, and then to yours. You know, what has that process been like? Uh,
2: yeah, the, yeah, and the word in Persian of this namelessness is binami, and it is a state that Rumi aspired to, and yes, he very um, much sort of enacted binami or namelessness by rebelling against the ghazal form, which which one of the demands of the form is that you do sign your name in the last couplet. So you would either you're addressing yourself or you're saying, you know, Hafez, blah 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 blah, or Attar, blah blah blah. And he never put his name, as you said, he put Shams's name, or or sometimes uh, uh, Chalabi or Salahuddin. Much much more rarely, these were two other male figures after Shams that were important in his life, um, and and often, but Shams was most often, and as you said, silence. The word hamush was most often was or was very commonly used instead of his name. And um, that that just uh, is so beautiful and so humble and so egoless, you know, to invoke someone else's name and say this poem is came through them. And, you know, I am silence now. I'm calling myself silence, perhaps, or I'm bringing myself to silence uh, and also recognizing that you know poetry emerges from silence and leaves us in silence as the poet marilyn nelson said and so in a way by calling silence at the end of all this he's calling in the next poem too um inviting himself to quiet down and uh for for me um you know just being behind the scenes and kind of like diving into his poetry was just a big pleasure really a, a nourishing pleasure for me to do this work and uh um yeah i i don't know i, I, I don't know my name is is there and you know there are uh, susan bernofsky is a wonderful scholar and wonderful translator she you know she often writes hashtag name the translator and one of the reasons that it's important to is because there are vast differences between the translations and some of the translators don't know the language at all some of them know it well some of them are honoring context some are not and also it gives us well it gives us a sense of transparency and accountability because a lot of times there's these lines online where they are just some random line and then it says rumi underneath and you're like i mean did he really say that who's saying he said that i would like to know who's saying he said that you know and that's a valid question um so i think it it helps us to recognize that, especially in poetry, there's another person involved. And what what time what time period are they coming out of? That also affects sometimes the translation because the way they understand the line. Some of Rumi's lines, if you take five Iranians into a room, they'll argue about the meaning. So then that becomes the job of the translator to interpret. You know, so there is a is a role there that it does make sense to name for the sake of our own. Um, recognition that uh, this is in some way on some lines, not all lines, because some the literal works well and is enough. But on some lines, there is a collaborative action happening. So
1: yeah. Yeah. that's so so well articulated and a beautiful point to transition to our host Cynthia. And um, thank you so much, Helen It's been a pleasure. And that over to you
0: well thank you both for such a an illuminating exchange um, I'm still a little bit in the glow from the opening uh, both the the words that puppy shared from assisi but also the the song of Rumi's that you sang at the beginning I'm just wondering as we transition um, some comments if this will also give you know people some time to um, write their reflections or uh, questions, um, uh, you can email us at ask at service space dot org. Um, but is there another song or a poem that you might be moved to share, um, either of Rumi's or one of your your own?
2: I'll share a, a short one of my own right now, just to honor my father, who I mentioned was the first one to, to um introduced me to Rumi's work, and he passed away in July. So this was a poem that I wrote recently uh, for him. I inherited it, I inherited awe from my father. Bah, 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 he whispered on a summer afternoon, sitting on the shore of bubble pond bah 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 the translation oh how beautiful oh how beautiful oh how beautiful
0: that's it it's beautiful. Thank, you. thank you you know as i was just um sitting back and listening and, and really receiving, you know, with my whole body, just the exchanges and the energy beyond the words. Um yeah, you know, what really struck me too is sort of where Rumi ends and where you begin, you know, and there's this just beautiful merging of the two. And as you're describing Rumi uh, you know, one hand up one hand uh, down and just basically I mean in a way receiving and translating what's coming through him, you know, is that I felt that you're you're channeling as well, um, and that this energy is he's really living anew uh, in you, but really merging through your unique expression, and I just want to thank you for that. Um, so uh, one question i'm going to just start with is my own is. Uh, related to that that beautiful embodied process is you know one thing when when I think of poetry and I'm, I don't often live in the world of poetry is um you know is reading the words with our minds opening our hearts to the emotion and this is really a fully embodied ecstatic reception you know and rhythmic and you also described your process of translating and you know choosing the words and maybe how you might organize the the translations of the poems, but do you have a particular, you know, pra- embodied practice or ritual that um that you might yeah be comfortable sharing with us or you know with any of us, not necessarily even for poetry, but just how to open us up to that expansiveness and the the ecstasy without apology.
1: Mm.
2: Well let's see. I do love dancing.
0: Mm.
2: I love dancing. Um, I do like also um, compound muscle interval training, <laughs> which sounds very official and athletic, but it's it's not. It's a it's a twenty minute practice where one is getting their heart rate up um, in intervals in short intervals of say ninety seconds. You know whether that means um, running up. Flight of stairs and the part there's a Prospect Park here has all these staircases, so oftentimes I run up the stairs. But why? Why am I saying this? I I feel that this kind of um, getting the blood flowing, getting the blood flowing, is one of the great um, doorways onto well-being. If we are able to, it's a gift, and it's nice to use that ability um you know when rumi says my wine is the motion of my blood you know mm-hmm. i think that he's speaking to this a bit here uh this idea that uh, uh moving the body and of course for him dance dance was his meditation this whirling dance so i think in be part of being embodied is moving our bodies and using our bodies and keeping them alive and awake in different ways so um that's central to my practice as a person i feel much better when i've been moving moving <laughs> you know it's getting incredible. fresh air being in nature you know being in the forest when i can being by the lakeside when i can these are important aspects of my life and breathing doing the four second inhale eight second exhale you know the the double length exhale the belly breath this is a very important practice to shunt us into the parasympathetic nervous system it's so simple but somehow the double length exhale really brings us into a space of calm which i think is so much of what we're talking about in mystical poetry, too, is this place where the nervous system is actually calm, and is able to to be that we are able to be at rest to be in our skin, to be present, you know, this is um, something that breathing can help us with so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you, thank you, you know, so a lot of uh, comments of just kind of awe and Gratitude are coming in um, and some questions as well. I'll just read a couple of reflections before I go into questions. Um, Shelly writes, what a beautiful profound morning. Thank you, Pavi, for your deep presence and leading the conversation with Hala. Hala, I am in awe of your being that is full of poetry, music, and essence. Such a wonderful experience.
1: Thank you. Um,
0: and um, and then Kate says, um, thank you for the invitation to deep listening and exhilaration through Rumi's poetry. I love the humor and the reminder to laugh at losing. Mm. Um, yeah. So um, let's let me see where we start. Um, Steve asks, um, I'd like to ask Hala to talk about this Rumi poem translation of hers below
2: if you if you read a line from it i'll know which okay um
0: he just says he loves it a lot I wanted to hear your thoughts on it um i saw myself sharp as a thorn yes I Fled to the softness of petals
2: yeah um maybe Did i'll you, read, it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. read it? yeah yeah
2: okay um that's on page uh, 34 of the book i saw myself sharp as a thorn i fled to the softness of petals I saw myself sour as vinegar. I mixed myself with sugar. An aching eye, seeing through pain, a stewing pot of poison, I was both. Reaching for the antidote, I touched compassion. I touched mercy. I was a cup holding only dregs I poured in the water of life. Raw and callow, I followed the ones already cooked by love's fire. In the dirt on love's path, I found the medicine that in soul's sight. My armor thinned to a silken scrim, I sifted the soil to give vision to the blind. Love said, yes, you have arrived, but don't think it's your doing. I am wind, you are fire, I stoke your flames. So that's love talking, right? After all of this transformative process that he's going through and this very confessional poem, I mean, to hear Rumi saying an aching eye seeing through pain, a stewing pot of poison. I was both, you know, is a confession on his part of we we're okay. You know, we're, you know, he's saying, I saying I'm transformed, reaching for compassion. I'm sorry, reaching for the antidote. I touched compassion. I touched mercy. So compassion for the self, recognition of the array of, of vinegar that we can embody and sugar that we can embody, that we can cultivate, that we can mix ourselves with, the thorn and the softness. You know, We are all of these things. And then what feeling state do we want to move more deeply into, and can we? And the answer, according to Suvis is yes. Any kind of feeling state that you want to move more deeply into, if you want to bring more softness into your life, you're able to as a human being. That's one of the uh, beauties of being a conscious human: is that we can steer our our, our minds and steer thus our feelings. You know, and so this to me is a very important poem, and it is a poem about transformation. And when he says, you know, talking about the armor thinning to a silken scrim, that's a very important line, and the fat is a word that means silky gentle delicate translucent so when he says they say there is a door between one heart and another how can there be a door where no wall remains the place where no wall remains is this, place of exchange this place where the armor has thinned the walls have thinned the shields have thinned and where we can let the light in and the light out where we are permeable and translucent and the exchange can happen um this is all in the poem and you know in the end when love said yes you have arrived but don't think it's your doing again that invitation stay humble <laughs> stay humble you know and then he says I and then love says I'm wind your fire I stoke your flames so that we will have to return again and again and again and again to love to love you know we we may be sharp as a thorn we fled to the softness of hells. and he does use that word fled which is interesting you know he's saying I escaped sort of from my thorniness to the softness you know and then maybe he comes back and goes forth but anyway there's that general movement towards this kind of latif openness softness
0: powerful right um rajiv um has a question and, and a comment um in urdu ghazal is usually a song made up of couplets i understand the word ghazal comes from farsi for melancholy is that correct an example of, oh Okay. Do you want to answer that and here's the second part? An example of a nice couplet in a famous Urdu ghazal: "In the prison of time is our entire life trapped. We have these few moments of freedom, my love. Let's not lose them and spend our lives in despair." I also wonder if Urdu ghazals like this have their roots in Rumi. Most of them are about unrequited or unfulfilled love. Thank you.
2: There's certainly a longing in the ghazals, and a oftentimes this bittersweetness, this uh, this melancholy um, desire for merging, a recognition of the initial separation from source, which is also very important. Um, a part of Sufi mysticism is the recognition of uh, the fact that we we in 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 our human bodies have been separated from source and our whole lives are longing to return is the idea so ghazals yes in terms of uh oftentimes taking on this topic they become associated with uh longing with melancholy with love with also the ecstatic too you know in in those times of merging in those times of union and um Etymolo- etymologically, as, as Pavi mentioned, it is related to gazelle, bringing again that idea of the leaps. So I hope that answers the question. Um, Ken asks, um,
0: Hala talked about bringing the spirit of the person across time. I'd be curious to hear when she knows she's got it right, when she finally senses, yes, this is it.
2: yeah I mean yeah I think when it's when it sings to me, when it sings to me when it moves yeah that's a good question I mean I guess it you know I guess at different points of the translation you know it's like you deal with the Persian you I read it aloud I read it aloud read it with my mother discuss it think about it eat it you know Rumi says eat my poems like Egyptian bread. So there's this feeling that you're eating the poem, you're letting it course through you, you're waking up with it, uh, riding the train with it. And so along the process, there's these moments of yes, and then, oh, I get that couplet, you know, or, ah, I finally got this couplet because now it sings. So whether it's in the comprehension, of it or you know the sort of sense of wonder that one gets through the image these are all moments of little yeses along the way and then in the translation process sometimes it's just about you know does it finally sing in my ear and at that time at that moment it's when you know that's when i feel a yes when i feel like the meaning the image and the music in english has have all kind of come together intersected overlapped and it's like oh yes it's done cuz there's a lot of like awkward moments along the way you know so <laughs> where it's like this isn't working yet or or what is he saying here you know and then and then doing maybe research or recognizing ah you know, knowing the, his body of work and saying, "Ah, this line gives me a clue about this very elusive line." You know, so, and then it's like, "Yes." You know? um,
0: Suchita has a comment. Um, I learned to love ghazals as a child in India from my dad listening to them. I could never understand why the music and words, which I mostly didn't understand, moved moved me deep within. Do you have a sense of why some music and words touch us in these mysterious ways?
2: Well, I, I, I relate to that experience because I didn't understand the meanings as a child, and yet I felt something had happened in the room, something, these words were transmitting some kind of spirit, some kind of experience. Is it the rhythm? Is it the wordplay? Is it the rhyme? Is it the, uh, the way it's recited? And then some people, of course, say that the words themselves have uh, their own kind of sound, um, uh, kind of... Uh, the mis, you know the, the mysterious quality of a like the word halim for instance is a persian word halim 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 means tender and soft it's one of the 99 names of god as well so when the sufis chant ya halim ya halim ya halim and it means tender soft halim itself has that quality
1: <sighs>
2: mm. Those three sounds—the H, the L, and the M—they carry a quality that, when we recite them, they have an impact on our cells. I think on our body. So I think words can have sort of the, the sound, the, word, the sound, the consonants. The, you know, whereas like there's some words that are, that are very harsh. They. Are, kuh, kuh you know, the k sound is like a harsher word, but this halim kind of embodies the meaning. Um, so some words are like that. And I think that, yeah, just, you know, poetry is, is music. So in the way that I think a musical piece will move us, uh, I think sometimes poetry can move us in the way that music does, even when we don't know the meaning. So I agree with that. I, I believe that that does happen.
0: Right. Someone's asking, one of the lines in your translations reads, where is your own voice? Answer me in your own voice, exclamation point. Do you feel you have discovered your own voice in this process? And how do you recognize it? And What has changed for you and in you through this work?
2: Well, I've certainly been nourished by the work. I feel like a happier person. Uh, than I was six years ago. I feel like a calmer person. I feel like a more present and embodied, uh, just uh, uh, more open. Uh, I, I, the work has changed me, there's no doubt about it. Um, as for my own writing practice, I have to say that uh, I think in a way I'm still kind of discovering my own poetic voice. I believe that, um, you know, that comes through many, many hours of writing and I'm doing that and discovering and maybe I'll always be discovering uh, my voice. What is the voice? How many voices does the voice carry, right? Um, these are all interesting questions and does the voice change over time through life and yes, how do other poets impact, certainly the process of translation has impacted my voice I don't actually. know if I can put it into words yet, I think it, when, once the poems are done, they will reveal it, that will be revealed to me as well. <laughs> you know, how this process has actually affected my own writing. It's it certainly affected my personhood, my sense of being, my sense, my feeling states. Certainly this work has impacted me in that way. Yeah,
0: and I, I think it's an interesting question too, because I mean, you, you did so, like, you're a musician, you're, you're a singer, right, and you did so much of your music also before you began translating for me, so it's, it's incredible just to see the different threads coming through, you know, and, and how how they're unfolding. Um, all right, when one, um, one listener asks, um, I do psychology research on self compassion, uh, mm-hmm. Brene Brown often quotes Rumi in her writings about her psychological research. You also mentioned Carol Dweck today. How do you see the connection between connect between psychology Brene Brown and and others and Rumi?
2: Yeah, well, I always say, I think Rumi was, you know, a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know, in, in some ways, he was, a, he was first a preacher, you know, he was a well, very well known preacher, then around the 30, age of 38, he started writing poetry, but Sufi mysticism to me is carrying all the wisdom of cognitive behavioral therapy, in that it is saying that we, <clears throat> we can steer our minds, we can transform our thoughts. Uh, we can do actions then that transform our thoughts as well. You know, there's the invitation to generosity. The act of generosity creates the, this kind of feeling in us um, that is uh, more expansive. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of um, you know, it's universal wisdom. So there's a lot of people and 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 psychologists, philosophers, poets since when we. Who have echoed Rumi's and before Rumi, whose words echo his own, because they're speaking about the human condition and they're speaking the universal wisdom. And I think that, um, you know, when Rumi often talks about, um, as I said, you know that pembe Vasvas, that one word that means doom-ridden chatter. You know he was very well aware that the human mind can spin and spin and spin with doom-ridden chatter. And in another poem, he says, "Mayandish, mayandish, don't think, don't think, quit pouring thoughts like kerosene on everything fresh and green, burning it to the roots. Be a fool." Be a fool drunk on love and soaked with awe till dry reeds are sweet as sugar cane this idea of being soaked with awe terry, terry tempest williams defines awe as the moment that ego surrenders to wonder right so in, in the invitation to awe the invitation to curiosity when he says you're not a seeker join us our curiosity is contagious you know um all of these things we hear echoes of in the in the spirit. In the, in the talks by Elizabeth Gilbert, by Brene Brown, by all these wise people who have been, you know, just tapping into the truth of the human mind and the truth of human existence. So yeah, I hear a lot of echoes. And I do think that he's one of the great, great uh, philosophers in this realm, helping us, you know. And when there's one poem in the book too where he says, Nemidonam, 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 which means I don't know. And every single couplet he's repeating, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. So this one is sort of an invitation for us to be comfortable with mystery, be comfortable with the fact that we don't know. In another poem, he says, put mystery in the middle, in the middle of your existence, the grand mystery. Put it because that's the reality. You know, So this kind of invitation also to be comfortable with the question mark, I think is something that a lot of people talk about nowadays. And he was talking about 800 years ago.
0: Right.
2: Um, a
0: couple of people are asking questions about um, albums, of Rumi oh. poems as song or songs of your own. Um, and also, do you have a live performance uh, lined up?
2: Well, my my um my events are all on my website, so it's haliliza. Uh, dot com. I think we I, I can I don't know if, if you yeah find we'll it. we'll
0: have that also we'll have that in the in the notes um, yeah. Yeah. The yeah
2: yeah so haleliza.com dot com if you want to sign up for the mailing list. I will send information about upcoming retreats. We just did a retreat. I just did a retreat at Omega on Rumi's poetry. And I do performances from time to time. I will be recording uh, this year um, music uh, based on his lyrics. And there are a lot of vocalists out there. Shahram Nazari, the you know, great Iranian vocalist. Shahram Nazari, um, uh Shajaryon, um, homayun is is the son of the very well-known chatterdarrin and then Homayun Cha very well known and very wonderful Parisa, saw these are all Iranian vocalists that sing his lyrics so these are people are on Spotify are on YouTube and you can hear them and so there's an array of vocalists and um yes and and I will record my own and my own you know they're very different than what Shahram nazari what Parisa does of course you know uh, as someone who's born here and, and soaked in uh, Western music for so long. It'll be reflective of that. But anyway, yeah.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, we'll have as many, you know, we'll have resources definitely on the um, on the recording page. Um, Pat asks the question, um, I am curious how Rumi felt about holding the weight of grief of losing a loved one. Um, and I, I guess I would love to just add to that, too, with the with the poem that you shared of your own, uh, given the recent passing of your father. Um, you know, was that part of your process? I mean, I know it's 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 an ongoing experience as well.
2: Right. Holding holding the loss of a loved one. Yeah, it's it's. Um i mean i personally had hadn't interfaced with death much in my life my grandparents died far away from me and i knew only one of them very well uh and somehow you know um, my father's death was the the first time to- one of the first times you know that i've and i was so so present for his passing and um yeah, I don't know if the grief will ever go away. I think that we hold the grief and we hold the memories, the good memories, and celebrate their lives. And you know, when my dad was on his deathbed, uh, I did you know share. I sang back to him some of the things that he recited to me as a child, and one of the lines, you know, "John uh, Haye Del Del it's it says um. Ecstatic souls, hearts that serve the heart, broke free from their prisons and launched like birds. And that poem, for most of my experience, was about you know the person that transforms, um, you know, and and gets more in touch with their heart, touches ecstasy you know, has, has, has broke free of a prison at what Rumi said, the shame, for instance, and guilt, he said, shatter the chain, tear it off. But in the context of my father's passing, the word, the line became about breaking free of the cage of the human body and how it disintegrates. And, you know, my father was suffering from Parkinson's syndrome, and it was very hard to see him suffering. And he, it was hard for him. And so in a way, his release from the body was breaking free so there was you know the mixture of grief and also recognition that that he's been released from the suffering and i do believe that he is in a place of calm and a place of rest and his spirit is soaring and so that gives me comfort so the mixture of comfort the mixture of grief the good memories the celebration of the spirit all of these things we hold at once and you know there was one line i recited to him uh, or a, a poem that Rumi begins uh, when we die, we marry eternity. And this is a very beautiful poem. And, you know, it, the last poem in this book, uh, he says on death, he says, um, he says, I am blasphemous and religious, the wine and, and its dregs, an old sage, a young man, a child. When I leave this world, don't say I died. Say I was dead, then came to life. Say the beloved whisked me away. You know, so in Rumi's existence, there were so many, he says, I died and was reborn countless times. And in that line, he's not talking about reincarnation. He's talking about within this finite existence, we die and are reborn so many times. The ego dies, the ego dies, the ego dies. We expand, we expand, we expand with each death. We bloom with each death. And then at the end, when he comes to the literal death, he says, say the beloved whisked me away. You know, which is such a beautiful way of describing death. So all of these ideas, I think, and thoughts and lines help in the processing. But the loss and the sadness, I don't know if that ever goes away. And of course, Rumi lost Shams of Tabriz, his beloved friend, his beloved friend. And he never stopped calling him in his poems. Even on his deathbed, he wrote a poem that ma- mentioned Shams at the end. You know, and it's about death. It's the penultimate poem in the book, but in that one as well, he's calling out to Shams even on his deathbed. So he never stopped missing him, never stopped grieving.
0: Yes, I mean, in the, I mean, his his poetry really was. It was all an expression of longing for the beloved with a lowercase b and beloved with a capital B. Yes, yes, and that sort yes. of sums up, sums up. That's yes. Awesome. Beautiful. Yes, yes. Um, all right. Um, just, we're at the, the end of our time. And I just I want to sneak in um, one last question before we begin to wrap up. Um, you had spoken earlier about, you know, finding what resonates um, for us and and also do you just go and do you, you know, go into you. Yeah. And um, so really, where is your or what is your current uh, life's work or life's play? And also, where does it appear to be uh, leading?
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm writing, I'm doing more writing now, working on my own poems. I'm also working on volume two of the Rumi. I can't stop engaging with translation the translation process is so wonderful so i'm working on my own poems i'm working on volume two i've been going to universities and different um places and sharing the work which i love to do i'll continue to do that um and uh you know um i'll i'll record as well but you know sharing this work feels it feels like a, a good it, it nourishes me and it seems to nourish others so i and, and uplift you know so I, w- I want to continue doing this work and and also writing my own poetry and essays so i'm working on that now wonderful well we look forward to it thank you it. thank you
0: and then um we have one final question that we ask all of our guests is how can we in the awaken calls community and in the greater Service-based ecosystem. How can we support your vision and work in the world?
2: Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you all for being here and listening and and, and um, spending the morning with us. And you know, of course, if you are interested in the work and you want to get the book, you know, that's a that's a help. If you if you find a poem in there that you want to share, um, that moves you and you think it would move others, and you share that poem, that's fabulous. Uh, the book is is available online every anywhere you buy books um, and also in some bookstores so yeah I would say that that would be a great way to support the work
0: wonderful all right um closing remarks from Puffy.
1: <laughs> I'll be really quick I hope you have a little extra time we'll we'll finish soon but I just wanted to Say by way of gratitude, I'd like to quote one of the openings of your poems. You leading the caravan, mm. look at your camels, head to tail, all of them drunk. <laughs> and I think on the caravan of this last one and a half hour, <laughs> we listen our camels have been joyfully intoxicated, and intoxicated in the best sense of the word, with this. Scrambling of you know fixed identities and concepts being sort of tumbled around and shattered and and that that the giddy the the holy giddiness that comes with that and I I do want to say that one thing that is so inherent in Rumi's poetry that you speak to so beautifully in your translations is this place where the speakable bumps up against the unspeakable you know where the invisible and the visible meet like that the heaven and the earth like the, that juncture that intersection um another one of your poems how can i ask how how can i ask how every how drowned in an ocean of know-how every what and why dissolved like salt on my lost tongue yes and i feel like the, the, the paradox of this interview is we've been asking how what why <laughs> and this is it you know it all yeah. dissolves on our yeah. last time. Yes. So thank you for, for that. Thank you for your embodiment and your offerings and your generosity. And if it's not too greedy of us, may we ask for a closing offering from you um, before we, we go in, we end like Rumi's poetry in silence.
2: Sure, sure. How about the first poem that I ever translated? I'll read it. It's the penultimate poem in the book and it is the one that he wrote to Shams on his deathbed. So as Rumi was dying,
1: if- And we will go into, and we'll go into silence after this, just to let the listeners know, thank you.
2: If wheat sprouts from my grave, and if you bake bread from it, expect to get drunk the baker and the dough will lose their minds the oven will rattle off ecstatic verse if you make a pilgrimage to my grave and stand on my burial mound expect to dance don't visit my grave without a drum my friend a feast with god is no place for sadness asleep in my grave mouth sewn shut I chew the beloved's sweet opium. If you tear off my shroud, wrap it around you. Open the tavern in your soul. On every side, drunkards brawl, drunkards sing. One action breeds another. God gave me life, gave me the wine of love. Death grinds me to dust and I am still that love. I am the drunkenness born in the wine of love. Tell me, what is the wine of love, but the ecstasy of loving? To the heights of the soul of Shams of Tabriz, my soul flies without delay. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org. And to get more involved, volunteer at
0: www.servicespace.org.